Blog Talk Radio. Way up high in a coconut tree, laying low just my baby and me. Sunny skies far as I can see, high up in a coconut tree. Welcome to Huck It Out America Live. It's been a long time since I've been on the air, folks. It's been almost a year. Last year, most of the time, I was live from my Lazy Boy, and then in the winter, I was live from my hot tub, and then when it got nice, I was live from the hammock in my backyard with my dog keeping me company. This year, I'm live from my Lazy Boy right in downtown Northampton in my One Love Unity Gallery. And I'm happy to finally get up and run it again. It's been a tough year, a lot of adversity and challenges. And I can't believe it's been that long since I've done a show. So I'm probably a little rusty. So take it easy on me. I hadn't been doing this for, just came running the door real quick to get this done. But we got great guests on today for our initial guest. People walking by waving hi. Carrie Smith. I met her indirectly through Facebook, and let's get her on the line, see if I can get back in the saddle here. Carrie? Hi, Billy. Hi, Billy. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks Thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate it. You're, you're my first guest of the new season. I've, oh, well, that's I literally haven't been on in a year. <laughs> wow. Um, where, I, where are you looking? I thought you were close by, but it sounds like you're um, a ways away from me from Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. I'm in Texas now. I used to be in um, Los Angeles. I'm, I'm originally from South Carolina, but... But then I lived in Los Angeles for about 15 years before moving to Austin, like a lot of people are uh-huh. doing. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I'm a big hypocrite because I'd like to shut the gates now. But uh, <laughs> I moved to I moved to Austin, and then a couple years ago I moved even further. I moved uh, north, a little north of Austin, and now I'm getting ready to move a little even further out into the country. Isn't Austin kind of a bubble of Texas? When I went there, it seemed very different than most of Texas. It is, yeah. It, Austin has a great history of, obviously, a great music history. And, um, you know, the slogan for Austin is Keep Austin Weird. And, and you know, it used to be sort of a, a good mix of cowboy culture and hippie culture together. You know, like the kind of audience makeup you'd see at a Willie Nelson show, like cowboys and and ranch hands mm-hmm. and hippies. Um, recently, however, Austin has become, I would say, it's become pretty um, pretty dominantly social justice, which I, is is very different from hippie left leftism, in my opinion. I think the social yes, justice yes. people are, are much more authoritarian. They're very controlling. They're like the fundamentalist Puritans on the left. <laughs> and so it's gotten a lot more of that influence in recent years. Plus it's got a lot of uh, all these, all the development that's been happening. There's, um, you know, Congress, the famous Congress Avenue. Uh, most of the mom and pop shows have, cl- sh- mom and pop shops have closed up 
business and and you know can no longer afford the rents there and now they're building a Tiffany's like it's I think it's going to look like Rodeo Drive. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like San Francisco where I used to live in that area so yeah similar idea. Um yeah I was there about 4 years ago during UT by UT and I was I can't remember there's a place that was like a homemade popsicle place and then behind oh, okay. it was this basically food cart, this guy from Peru that I met. Mm-hmm. And the best food I had was on this food cart. He basically opened up and was a just a, a picnic table. It was better than all the food up and down the, the street, you know. And, yeah. and he barely spoke any English and... I had a great experience was there, and I met some some amazing people. I met a guy, his name is um, Chazabs. He's a guy who has, he's done a TED Talk with like millions of views called New Shoes. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who, who's been all around the country taking pe- people's pictures of homeless. And he, it, when mm-hmm. he takes their picture, he gives them a dollar for taking a picture of a person that's homeless. So it's called One Dollar Dreams. And he's been all around okay. the world taking pictures of homeless people. So that's that's my experience with that area. But you said you were originally from South Carolina? Yeah, I'm originally from South Carolina near a little tiny town, but uh, near Spartanburg, if you're familiar with that area, Spartanburg. What's Greenville. it called? Um, my town is called Chesney. It's, pretty, it's less than 1,000 people. Um, it's called Chesney? about an hour Mm-hmm. Chesney, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a Cherokee word. It's about an hour south of uh, of Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, you know what? We have more in common than you think. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah. have, you, have you heard of Chesney? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been there. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. How, what is any, the world? Any good respecting <laughs> Southerners been, been to Chesney? You kidding me? Yeah. Oh, wow. Home of the uh, uh, what's that restaurant there? The Bantam Shelf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I I miss the South. I very soon. I hope I will be back in the South. I'm having a hard time with these winters in Massachusetts. They're kicking my butt. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a flip flops guy in cowboy hat. I see you in cowboy hat. Yes. You like cowboy hats too? Oh yeah, I've, I have a I have a boot and hat problem. But as problems go, <laughs> it's, it's it's not as bad as some. So, uh, yeah, I love I love that people in 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 the South and especially in Texas, which I know it doesn't consider it it considers itself as something entirely different. But <laughs> yeah. Texas is there's a lot of hat people, and I love hats on men and women. You know, it's like um, for some reason it, it seemed to fall out of fashion with men, other than ball caps. But I love seeing a guy in like a nice fedora cowboy hat. No, they they style it. They take it GQ. My my sister lives in Dallas, and I spent a couple of summers there. And man, do they dress nice in Dallas? You, they don't let you mm-hmm. in the town if you don't dress nice. I mean, they do it up like nobody's business. It's and and I yeah. ought to say, you look far better in a cowboy hat and boots than I ever did. My my kids want to take mine off half the time. Daddy, you look horrible. Because <laughs> I have this hat. Have you ever heard of something called No Shoes Nation? No, I haven't. So 
speaking of Chesney, you've heard of Kenny Chesney? Yeah. So Kenny Chesney has a radio station called No Shoes Nation, and it's basically a station where he plays feel-good music, everything from country, R&B, rock, rap, reggae, but all feel-good and laid back. And I would call it an Instagram of the radio because he does these interviews. He may be drunk on some street lost or talking to a homeless guy. It's really down to earth, and the music, it's like my favorite thing, but his logo says No Shoes Nation has a skull and crossbones. Is, oh, is, I don't is think I am. It sounded familiar, but I don't think I am familiar with him. I'll check that out. It's on Sirius XM, if, if you know what that is. I do like know what radio that is. Station. <laughs> yeah, so 57, you, you, you should check it out. It's easy to get addicted to that, for sure. Cool. So I wanted to... I don't know if I told you this, but how I met you was pretty interesting, or how we got acquainted. Yeah. And he, here in Northampton, and, and you knew this, I had a sign in my front yard that a friend of mine painted that had a picture of a Trump supporter hugging a Black Lives Matter person. And yep. it got on the news, and I got a lot of flack. I got a lot of flack. People called me a white supremacist, came by my house, screamed at me, threatened my family, had to get the cops Crazy. patrolling my street for for having two people trying to hug it out, right? Yeah. And and I had that going on, and then I found you. I'm not sure exactly how you think. I was scanning YouTube, and I saw your video. I think it was from Trigonometry. I'd never seen mm-hmm. the show before, and I'm like, man, this girl is cool. She is badass. I love this girl. <laughs> so, so I went to my Facebook messenger to send you a message, and you had sent me a message like four months ago about what had happened to me. <laughs> that was so, so wild. So then I started listening. I don't listen to a, a, lot, of your, a lot of your stuff. I fished a little bit, and I just felt, a connection and a little bit on yeah. what you've been through. Not a similar situation, but I yeah. wanted to tell, want you to tell the audience, if you don't mind, how you got to where you are. Because where you were a while back in your mindset is very different than where you are today, right? Yeah, it is. And um, and Billy, I read about back when I messaged you, whenever that was. I think it was one of our unsafe space listeners who had sent me who was friends with you or something had sent me your story. And that's why I oh, messaged really? you back then. Interesting. Yeah. I, I need to go back to my old messages and see how I found out about you. But, um, but, but yeah, I was, um, I was what is commonly referred to as a social justice warrior. I know that nowadays they don't like that term, but you know, we came, we social justice warriors coined that term originally. And, and uh, for about 20 years, I pushed that, that belief system, that ideology. Oh wow, you were doing that for twenty years? Oh yeah, I, I was I, I was indoctrinated into it in college. I went to Duke University, um, graduated in two thousand. Oh, research triangle area. Yep, and I um I was a true believer. It, it took me a while. I thought it was just uh, a, a natural progression of liberalism and, and progressivism and. I considered myself a liberal and a progressive and and me until um 
it was around 2016 is when I started, there started to be some cracks in the foundation of my beliefs. And a lot of that happened because I was watching, I was watching what was unfolding around me in, in response to Trump, in response to the election. And I was one of those people, I was, I was fully in a social justice echo chamber. I had over the years, I had, um, had cultivated this, this, this echo chamber. I had, you know, cut people out of my life the way that a lot of them do if you don't agree with them. Um, I had really just reduced my world to people who were in the same belief system as me and news sources that confirmed my beliefs and all that. And so I had a lot of stereotypes. I had a lot of ideas about Trump voters and I um, somehow accidentally went down a YouTube rabbit hole of, of videos on YouTube of people that were supposedly on my side, people on the left, attacking Trump supporters, like physically assaulting them at Trump rallies mm. at different, in different cities too. And I just didn't know, I had not, I had not known that that was happening. And in fact, the narrative I believed from the legacy media that was that, was that it was Trump supporters who were violent and that they were committing a lot of violence at rallies. And I couldn't find those videos on YouTube, but I could surely find the ones of people on the left who supposedly represented me um, throwing bricks at Trump, people coming out of Trump rallies, egging them, mobbing them. And it scared me. It, it made me sick. I cried. I, was, I, just, I just didn't know this was happening. And so that was one of the first cracks in my belief system. I didn't change my views on anything overnight. I... Um, but I did start, I think what happened is I started realizing maybe, maybe I don't have all the facts. Like maybe I, what I believe to be true is not true. And so that made me question other things. And, and, um, Carrie, and then Carrie, yeah. Do you mind? And I backtrack just for a second before you go forward. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm really curious how you got into being a social justice warrior when you were younger. Yeah. Because I think that's a key to okay. what goes on today. It is a key. You're right. Um, because I was in indoctrination, and I do think of it as indoctrination. Um, and, and it happened to me in college, as I said. But nowadays, it's happening much younger. It's in the public schools now. It's even in some you know, pre-K kindergarten classes. But um, I was introduced to it at college, and uh, my door – there are a lot of different doors that will get you into social justice, and the door that I took into it was feminism. I was a women's studies uh-huh. minor, and, uh, and then as part of my women's studies minor, I also was introduced to and took classes in critical race theory, queer theory, um, all, of, all of these different – Back then uh, they had that? Doorways. I didn't know that. Yeah. And nowadays, women's studies, though, at most most colleges is called gender studies because they decided when women's studies is problematic. (laughs) um, They also now have other doors you can take to get into it. They have fat studies, um, uh, mental health justice, uh, environmental justice. So, so, so basically, the way I describe it is this: no matter which door you take to get into social justice, they teach you that the best way to look at the world is as a struggle for power among identity groups. And so a lot of times I will call it a mutated form of Marxism because one way of looking at the Marxism of old is, is, is as an ideology that said 
that told us that the best way to look at the world is as a struggle for wealth among class groups. And if we could just redistribute the wealth, then we would all be equal in utopia, right? They, the social justice warriors, they, they substitute power for wealth and they substitute identity for class. So they think that the whole world is best viewed as this power struggle among identity groups. And if we could just redistribute power among these groups, then we would all be equal and we'd live in a utopia. And that way of thinking is is fundamentally a collectivist worldview. It's collectivist, just like just like white supremacy. It tells us that we have to look at each other as as group members. Like I, that, when I look at you, I should figure out and, and tr- judge you and, and treat you differently based on what race you are, based on what sex you are, what sexuality you are, if you're fat or average weight, if you have mental health problems or if you don't. And so they go through all these different um, different kinds of identity and they divide all of them up into this false dichotomy truly of oppressor and oppressed or they will sometimes use the words privileged or marginalized and so it's a really simplistic way of dividing everything up they're like okay so men are the oppressors women are the oppressed um white people are the oppressors anyone who's not white is the oppressed um, of course, they contradict themselves sometimes, like with Asians. They now will tend to refer to Asians as white adjacent or as benefiting from systems of white, you know, white supremacy. <laughs> they, depending on how they want to use Asians, either through men with people of color or with white people. But they, um, they will look, you know, straight people are the oppressors, gay and lesbians are the oppressed, um, cisgendered people, which is the one they they've come up with cisgendered anyone who's not trans they'll say those are the oppressors trans you know fat people are oppressed anyone who's not fat is the oppressor and they just continually go through these different kinds of identity and put people in these groups and they truly believe and they teach you one of the first things they teach you one of the first things i learned in college in this belief system was they redefine words and so they taught me the new definition of racism and sexism. They, they taught mm-hmm. me, and they still teach this today, they say, oh, racism is not judging and treating people differently on the basis of race. Racism requires group power, systemic power. So they will say racism is prejudice plus power, and sexism is prejudice plus power. And wow. what they're effectively doing there sounds is they It sounds unfamiliar. They're telling you, and, and this is when it trickles down and kids start speaking this stuff, what comes out of their mouth is, well, it's impossible to be racist towards white people. It's impossible to be sexist towards men. Or, or it's, it's impossible for a person of color to be racist. Or if I had a nickel for every time some, some white person has told me that. Yeah. That's one of the yeah. first things they teach you. And, and think about why they do that. It's necessary for them to, to to instill that belief in you first. Because if they can get you to believe that, then they can get you to justify judging and treating people differently on the basis of race and sex. How do they mm-hmm. get you? See, it's a belief system that sells itself as anti-racism and anti-sexism. So how do they get people who, who, who are well-intentioned, good, people who want to do and be good and who want to fight racism and sexism, how do they get them to be okay with judging and treating people differently on the basis of race and sex. They have to redefine what those words mean. Otherwise, you wouldn't do yeah. it. Yeah, I carry, I have a 
I have a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I live probably the liberalest city I've ever lived in. I live near Berkeley, so Northampton, Mass. is probably the liberalest city I've ever lived in. And wow. the way they are trying to indoctrinate my, my kids, I've been reading the books that they – they read this one called Stamped. I don't know if you know that book. Oh, yeah. By Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. And when I got Kendi, finished yeah. reading that book, I I told my, my – actually, one of my daughter's teachers is really good. He's kind of somewhere in the middle. He's not near as bad as them. But I said, my daughter is not going to be participating in discussion of this book. I don't like her feeling bad because she's white. I, I don't want anybody to feel yeah. bad about their color. I don't feel ashamed or or ridicule anybody else because of their color. And then what happened with me is then they signed another book, which is probably the scariest book I know right now as far as the idea you're going about. Have you heard of this? This book is anti-racist? Oh, yes. <laughs> by by yeah, they, Jewel, Tiffany Jewell. It's got illustrations. It's, it's got a workbook on how to become a social justice warrior from when you're like a kindergartner. Yeah. Like exactly yeah. what you're talking about. They've even got – there's a book called Anti-Racist Baby that is marketed at uh, what? toddlers. Yeah, Are you and kidding that's, me? That's an, I'm not kidding, and that's an even Kindy book. And, you know, they push the idea – see, they're – Orwell talked a lot about this. You can control people very well if you can control what they allow themselves to think, if you can control their thought. And you can control thought by controlling their language. And so they're really concerned with language. They, they're always redefining um, commonly accepted definitions of terms. They're coming up with new definitions. And then they're coining new phrases, new terms, all the time. They, and so anti-racism is one of the rumors. They say, even if Kendi says, that it's impossible to be not racist. That you have yep, to I've heard that. And again, yeah, they said it to self-dichotomy. Again, they say you can, you're either racist or you're anti-racist. Well, then what you dig into what does anti-racist mean? Anti-racist means judging and treating people differently on the basis of race. <laughs> so it's the same thing as racist, but they're making I, I, I know, yeah, it's... Two. That that book, yeah. one thing, that book, the Tiffany Jewell book, there's one passage that I think really hit me. She's talking about all the things she is, and she says in letters, I am proud of my extra melanin. So basically, wow. yeah. if you had said that as a white person, you'd be called mm-hmm. a white supremacist. It's written in the book, and I took a picture, and I took it to the teacher, and I go, this says right here, that she thinks she's better because she has more melon. She's black. That's basically saying she's black. And it, it was so upsetting. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be completely honest. Carrie, I have never got – I've been probably done 40 shows, and I am a middle-of-the-road person. I am like – when you're in the middle, people take shots at you from both sides, but you can see both sides yeah. really good. Yeah. But I am damn well not putting up with this crap. I have never got remotely on one side on a show in my life. But I sure as hell am not going to let the racism that me and you grew up with in the South, as we know it, yeah. 
You grew up there yeah. too. You know how it was. I'm not going to let it go the other way. I refuse to let that no. happen. It's and it's kind of a it's kind of crazy because that's exactly where they're taking us is to this really racially divisive um, racist future, and they don't see anything wrong with that. And I think a lot of the people, unfortunately. The architects of it, the ones like Eva Max Kendi and Robin DeAngelo, the ones who um, are yeah. making a lot of money from it, I don't know. I don't know if they believe everything they're saying. I don't know. But I think a lot of the the foot soldiers, the people like me who pushed it for twenty years, have good intentions, and they're just not living consciously. They're not. They're not authentically evaluating what is it that I believe and why do I believe it. A lot of people – have you ever heard of the um, – the um, uh, I think it was the Ash Conformity Experiments of the 1950s? No, I don't know what that is. These are so interesting to read about. You should look these up. And they've repeated them many times over the decades. But they basically – they did these studies in the 50s where they would take people, like six people into a room, and they would show them – um, different lines on a paper. They would draw lines of different lengths, and then they would say, okay, we're going to go down uh, the row here, and I want you each to, to tell me which is the longest line. And the first five uh-huh. people would be plants, and they would all pick the wrong line. They would pick, like, a short line. And then it would get to the sixth person who they're actually observing and studying, and that person, 75% of the time, would pick an obvious shorter line if everyone else did. <laughs> like, like, like would not pick the, the observable long line, would go along with the crowd. And those, those experiments blew my mind because I was, at the first time I read about those, and they repeated them over and over with pretty much consistent results that only 25% of the population won't go along with the crowd. And, that, and at first I thought, that's such a small percentage. Yeah. And, but now, the more I think about it and the more I see what's unfolding around us today, I think, wow, 25% seems pretty high. I hope we can get that much. When you changed your – basically you changed the DNA of how you thought, basically, did you lose a lot of friends in that process? Oh, yes. I was – because I – like a lot of um, social justice warriors my age – um, you know, we were indoctrinating college, and we were taught at college how to become little activists. We weren't taught how to think. We were taught what to think, and we were sent into the world to change the world. Um, Jonathan Haidt, he talks a lot about how there's two uh, opposing views of the purpose of university, and one of those views would be the view of John Stuart Mill, which is that you go to university, the purpose of education is to learn how to think. And the other view is the view of someone like Marx, which is that the purpose of university is to create little activists to go out and change the world. And I would say one of those views has been winning for a while. (laughs) So anyway, people my age group, we were indoctrinated. We went out into the world and we took our newfound belief system with us wherever we went to work and we made it our priority. I worked in entertainment. Uh, I I managed comedians and I was a television producer. And excuse me. And I took my belief system with me. I primarily worked with comedians who pushed social justice ideology in their work. Um, the TV shows I produced were social justice in theme. 
um, we produced one of the first late night comedy shows that was uh, that was thoroughly social justice. And I say social justice as again distinct from liberalism, distinct from what we had seen before. Because most late night comedy okay. shows lean left, but they weren't thoroughly social justice until we we did our show was called Totally Biased. It was on FX for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Rock was one of our other executive producers and. Mm-hmm. Um, and that show, we did all the social justice stuff. We did topics like, you know, how certain jokes are off limits and certain speech should be censored. And, you know, you shouldn't be able to do jokes about certain subjects like rape. And, you know, Apu on The Simpsons is racist and needs to be banned. And, you know, we did like mm. thoroughly sensorial, um, authoritarian comedy. It's just that I couldn't see it as all those things for a while. Sounds I very hypocritical to me. It is, it is, and once you, once you start to wake up from it and you look back on it from the outside, you're like, how can people not, how could I not see it for so long that we were pushing censorship, we were pushing control of, of others? That's not liberalism. Liberalism is, is about more expression, about removing limits and barriers to expression. Yes, and, not illiberal. Right, exactly, and so... But it's done – it does such a good job of selling itself as the opposite of what it is. And, uh, and yeah, so I was, in, I was in the comedy world, and I had built my whole career around pushing social justice projects. People knew me as the feminist manager in my little niche of the world. And, um, and then when I started waking up, it was really scary. I uh, took me about six months from the time when I first – felt very confident that I thought my belief system was wrong. <laughs> it took me about six months after that to say anything because I was so afraid. Oh, wow. And I, and I understand that yeah. fear. Yeah, because I knew you're going to lose things. And, and I finally got yeah, over I that fear, yeah. and I, I, I wrote an essay called uh, On Leaving the, so- the SJW Cult. And I wrote that essay just trying to explain to my colleagues Mm-hmm. Then, as a, is, is, I think I'm that was my coming out piece. Yeah. Okay. Are you losing? Oh, and so I that essay ended up being the beginning of like my great unfriending. <laughs> so there was a long if, if, if you where... if you develop like a new web of friends, because gotta be honest, I don't have any friends in my town. I, I really have oh, like no. two because I, uh, I don't. I just don't think like them. I really don't. Yeah. I, um, it's the it's most like liberal you, town you'll ever imagine. Do you remember the 1972 film, The Stepford Wives? Yeah, I, I remember. I never watched it, but I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you're Billy. You should go watch it now because it's like a lot of old classics. It's very relevant now. You're like the last two women in the in the movie and in the book who haven't been turned yet into robots. Right. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the confidence. It's not that bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I did make a new network of friends, and a lot of them I've met online, like you. I, I mm-hmm. we started. So my friend. Carter and I, um, he was an old acquaintance of mine from the entertainment industry. 
Um, but we were never very close. And at the same time that I started losing a lot of friends and some of them publicly denounced me and all this stuff. Um, at the same time that I started losing a lot of those friends, I started hearing from acquaintances who, who have now become some of my best friends and he's one of those people. So we started the podcast called unsafe space where we started talking Mm. about all these issues about culture and ideology and belief systems and, um, and, and then I through that I've also met a lot of people um, in my in my neighborhood. I live um, north of Austin in a little a, a smaller town, and um, most of my friends in my town uh, we don't really. Well, sometimes we'll talk about like the issues that I talk about in the podcast and stuff too, but um, some of them just just. I don't know. We, we're friends because we uh, both go to the dog park together, or you know what I mean. Like it doesn't always come mm-hmm. up unless they assume. Sometimes people will assume um, I'm a social justice warrior, and they'll say stuff to me um, where Why they, do they think I'm that? going to. I think because they think I dress kind of funky. Like I get a lot of compliments. Oh, I like your style. And then <laughs> nice and then later. <laughs> <laughs> Nice stereotype, just because you yeah, dress yeah, that way. I don't know. Yeah, or if, especially if I'm with my friend Gus, uh, they'll because he's black, they'll assume that you know the two of us are SJWs, and and oh. he's not. <laughs> he's a wrong. Yeah, most thinker. people assume I'm homeless by the way I'm dressed because I'm not dressed very nice. So. <laughs> I'm used to that. Yeah. Or sometimes like people will confuse old school hippies. Like, so I, a lot of my friends in, um, in, well, I, I'll just say the name of my town. I'm moving soon. Anyway, I live in Georgetown. A lot of my friends in Georgetown who pro- have been protesting um, the mask mandates back when we had the mask mandate here, they're mm-hmm. old school hippies. They're on the left. They're not on the right. Oh, really? They're, like, yeah, but people will confuse. They'll they'll see the way they dress, or they'll be like, "Oh, this person's artistic," or whatever, and then they'll assume they're an SJW, and it's like, "No, dude, I'm an actual progressive. <laughs> I'm not a not a social justice person." You know, uh, it's a different thing. It, 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 <laughs> it's amazing how it really can just take take over, like. I moved here from California. I lived in California for 20 years. I moved here, and I think my wife went further left where I didn't, maybe because I grew up in the South, and I've lived in six different states. And I, I'm going to be honest. I literally think that had to do with a, a portion of why me and her recently got divorced. Wow. Is we just saw things so differently. We would just kind of fight about stuff because we weren't on the same page anymore, and I yeah, that's... couldn't couldn't deal with it. And and I can deal with. Yeah. A, I talk to a lot of different minded people, but when you start, my thing is, you know, people. I was talking about this. People talk about the right and how they'll be derogatory to somebody they'll call somebody an asshole stupid but they won't call people racist and evil and that's a much that's a contemptible thing and i'm i have no tolerance from that from anybody there's no recovery from that you're right there there are studies done that i read about that said that the number one indicator this was just one study i read the number one indicator of whether a couple would 
that's going through marriage counseling would end up in divorce or not was whether or not they had introduced contempt into their uh, communication yeah, with one another. Too. I do that. Well, yeah. she, my wife didn't do that. No, she, she definitely did not. But right. we just had different ideas of what, you know. I think we were kind of, for me, I was, I hated Trump. I really, really despised Trump when I moved here. I'll give you a another. Sorry if you don't mind, I'll give you a quick story about me. Sure. Um, so I lived in the Bay Area, and I did not like Trump for the way he treated women. Um, and I, to me, I had never touched any near, near politics in my life. I was a guy who watched ESPN, listened to music, and rode my mountain bike. I didn't, I didn't touch politics. And my daughter, one day... I was picking her up. I'd walk up to school when she was in, I think, second grade, coming home from school, and she, I would carry her backpack, and she would jump the cracks. You know, kids don't like touching the cracks. It's lava. So yeah. I would hold the backpack, and she turned around to me just real nonchalantly said, is Donald Trump going to send my friend's parents back to Russia? And it just switched me, like, the love of the most important thing in my life is now being affected by a politician. And yeah. I switched from watching ESPN to watching CNN. And I started a whole movement called Stop, Hate, Go Vote. And I went around the country trying to get people not to vote for Donald Trump. And I read all the stuff that liberal media gives you about him, how they make him look so evil. Wow. And he's yeah. Hitler-like. And I had that in my head. And then I moved here, and I continued that thing. I, I was up to the last hours. I've been, I was in New Hampshire, polling, trying to make sure Trump didn't get elected. But I did the stop, hate, go vote because I knew how polarizing Hillary was. And I didn't really like Hillary in the South. Not many people like Hillary. Um, yeah. but, and, and my parents didn't like so maybe that's something to do with it. But I had this, this button that says stop, hate, go vote. And even the poll workers wore it because it had no candidate on it. So I was adamant about it. And then when Trump won, I was so depressed, completely depressed. My wife was too. And I went to Walmart at about 5 o'clock in the morning, or 6 o'clock because I barely slept. And this was in Northampton where I live. And I went to the Walmart, and I went to buy these flags. And I was going to put them at half-mast. And I got there, and I started bawling, crying in the island, and I don't cry that much. I just started bawling. And this guy in the Walmart guy came up to me and said, are you okay? She, I'm fine. I'm just really upset. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now that Trump's president. My daughter is the worst person and all this. He said, I'm sorry. And he wants to say, I'll be okay. And I was still upset. And this guy came up behind me in a, with a cart, and he had a red hat on. And he said, are you going to sit there and cry or are you going to get out of my way? And I it took me a long time for people to tell this story because I've hidden it for a long time. But it's turned to be my power for now. And I, so I got up and I got out of his way. At that point, I was so enraged with hate, anger, frustration, a range of emotions. When he walked past me, I took my hand and I swiped it off the top of his head and knocked his hat off. 
when I did, I had my wedding ring on. And it hit the top of his head and kind of scraped the top of his head. And he screamed that I assaulted him. And the minute I did it, I went down, I knocked the hat down an aisle. I forgot what aisle it was in Walmart. I immediately put it back on his head. I said, I am so sorry. I don't know what came over me. I didn't mean to do that. He goes, you hit yeah. me. I was like, sir, I did not hit you. I was seeing stars. And he says, I said, I'm really sorry, sir. He goes, he goes I'm going to press charges. I'm going to call the police. He said, manager, get over. And then the manager got over there said, get the cops in here. Next thing I know, I was marched out in handcuffs out of Walmart. Wow. And I was put in jail. And I went through six to seven months of court cases to get not go to jail for five years for assault and battery. And what happened is they bought his story. And everybody bought a story. And the newspaper printed a false paper statement about me that I hit somebody in the head. And I've been known in this town as an old man beater. And they didn't get my story. They said they contacted me, and they never contacted me. So the old man said that I hit him, and I never did. So it went on and on until they got the Walmart camera. And they showed the camera and showed proof that I knocked the helmet off, knocked the hat off, and the charges were dropped. And I went through a massive depression. I was scared to leave my house. And through that, I completely changed who I was. I literally transformed into this person of I cannot let hate of anybody take over my life because it wears you down more than the person that you hate. It will take over your life. And I need to start understanding all perspectives. Yes. And that's how I started Hugging Out America and I had this gallery and everything. So I had a transformation of my own. That's and now it. I see it's, things from all over. It's uh what a what an amazing story, Billy. I mean that's really what it is though, I think, is everybody I've talked about who's opened their mind, um, opened their heart or and specifically those who I know who've left social justice like myself. They had a personal transformation. It's like this sort of understanding that the way in which I'm interacting in the world is not the best way. <laughs> and yeah. there are better ways. And and so um, it's a slow process, too. And it's, it's uh, it, for me, much like getting into what I call the cult of social justice, that was a long process. Well, getting out of it was also long. But um, oh, I'm sure you know, we do have a lot in common because I was I was full of I was full of a lot of rage when I was a social justice warrior, and I I was one of those people who cried the night that Trump won. I mean, my beliefs had already been shaking shaken a bit because you know when I went down that rabbit hole of YouTube videos uh, of of leftists attacking Trump supporters, that was before the election, and that shook me. But I still believed. At that time, I still believed all of the stuff about Trump and, and a lot of it, which was hyperbole and just, just hysteria. And I, when he won, I cried. All of that stuff had affected yeah. me. And um, uh, when I look back on some of that stuff now, it's, it's, it helps me to look back on it because sometimes now I, I, I struggle with maintaining empathy for people who are hardcore believers in what I used to believe. And I have mm-hmm. to remind myself how there are people with good intent and bad intent in 
every belief system. And so there are, of course, there are people with bad intention in social justice who just want to be the people oppressing. They don't have a problem with oppression. They just want to be oppressing. Um, There are those people. But there's also a lot of people in it with good intent who've just been lulled into this ideology. And and it's not an IQ thing. There's lots of smart people who have been indoctrinated into this. If you look at any cult, I've been watching a lot of cult documentaries recently, you know, the Heaven's Gate cult, for example, those people, a lot of the people in that cult were very high IQ, um, but they, it, it, there are a lot of similarities in different kinds of cults. And one of, one of those uh, things that you can see in social justice is this control over language, like controlling thought by controlling mm. language and, you know, sort of colonizing a person's mind, if you will, slowly over time. And coming up with new words, new definitions, redefining old terms. You see that in everything from Scientology to uh, Heaven's Gate to the Manson family to social justice. Yeah. And, Carrie, what – what? so, you know, when you said, you know, I'm the few that aren't turning to Stepford Weiss in my, in, in my town – from your perspective, since you were on that side so much, I mean, I barely did it for a year, and I, I know my knowledge of it is very little. I just got sucked into it really fast, and I got sucked out really fast, thank God. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, what is the key to help these – to make these people open their eyes again, which almost like a blind conformity to me? Yeah. Um, well, that's <laughs> – that's a, that question I get asked a lot, and um, unfortunately, I don't have a quick and easy answer. I don't think that people's minds are changed easily with facts, and this, yeah. this I think, is supported by Jonathan Haidt, who I mentioned earlier. He has a book called The Righteous Mind, which is one of my favorite books. I definitely recommend no, it. No, I have it in my gallery. I know it. I have it. It's a good book. book. And he, yeah, so you know, he talks about how a lot of our minds are, you can, you can think of our mind as like an, a rider on an elephant. And the, the rider is the rational part of our mind, and the elephant is the emotional part of our mind. Mm-hmm. And he said, we all like to think that our rider controls our elephant, but it's actually, for most of us, it's the other way around. And, you know, yeah. some people to a higher degree than others, but the elephant a lot of times makes up its mind, the emotional mind, and then we rationalize it backwards, like our, our rational mind then justifies our opinion. But we, we come to our opinion a lot of times emotionally. And so I think one of the answers is that we have to get better at telling stories that, that, that provokes people's emotion, that speaks to their emotional mind, and also having the facts behind us. Like we, you know, a, a great example is, I will sometimes watch a conservative and a liberal debate something like minimum wage, okay? And mm-hmm. the, the liberal will say we need to increase minimum wage. If, if you care about people, you'll increase minimum wage. And then they'll tell a story about here's a single father and he's working two minimum yeah. wage jobs to get by. And, and they, they, they in tell human you terms. the story. Yes, they put it in human terms, and you can picture this father, you can picture this kid. It's like, if you care about this father, then you will uh, vote to increase minimum wage. Okay, well, the conservative will come back with stats and figures and say, well, actually, if you increase minimum wage, this many businesses are going to go under, and this many Mm. employees are going to be laid off, 
and this many wages are going to be cut, and it's going to end up hurting people. But they don't tell the story often. They, it's like, you should tell the same. You should be like, here's a single father. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, They're all and facts. And here's what's yeah. going to happen. Yes, have the facts, but tell the story first. Because people aren't listening to the cold facts. They don't listen. It, uh, you, even with me, when I woke up, the first thing that cracked my belief system was watching videos of people on my side attacking Trump voters. That made me cry to see that. And, and that was an emotional thing that woke me up. And, and it was so just do the you first think liberals in, are better with the storytelling? Yes. <laughs> They're very good That's at the, the storytelling. Problem. They tell great stories, and a lot of times, sometimes they well, have to decide, but a lot of awesome times they stories don't. just not about politics. Right. They don't know how yeah. to emotionally. There's another great book I read called Love Your Enemies. You would really like this one. Um, uh, that's about, funny you know, that you mentioned that book. I'm doing a book group in my gallery in two weeks with 12 people of different perspectives reading that book. Oh, I read it three great. times. Yeah, Arthur Brooks. <laughs> I love that book. Yeah, you know how he talks. He talks about. He says, uh, you know, he he actually references Jonathan Haidt in that book, and he and he says, you know, when I he gives a story, he says when I worked at a nonprofit, I was in charge of raising lots of money every year, and he said I learned very quickly how to tell a story because I could go to people and I could say this percentage of the kids in this country live in poverty and this percentage need shoes and this percentage, but nobody responds to that the way they do. If you go and say, here's a picture of Hugo, Hugo is, and you tell the story of this one kid that personalizes the stats and that would raise money for his charity. And like, that's another great example of, of, of I think what part of the answer is, is like learning how to speak to people's emotional mind and then back it up with stuff that will, appeal to their rational mind. Have you read um, the book, um, Don't Label Me? No, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, you, this, this woman's badass. You'll love her. Her name is Irshad okay. Manji. You ever heard of her? No, I haven't heard of her at all. She is an Egyptian Muslim lesbian who has a dog who one of her best friends is a Trump supporter. And she her thing is, don't label me. My, who you define me by label is the beginning of who I am. She, her book is amazing. It's written from the perspective of talking to her dog. And I don't know if you know about Muslim cultures, but dogs are not a good thing in Muslim culture. They think wow. they're clean, uh, unclean, they're evil. In this book, you got to check it out. It's, it, it, like I, I will. Said, that it's sounds called, great. Don't label me. Don't label I, me. In my book group, on my book group, I read a conservative book that's about unity, a liberal book about unity, and then I have one that's called Union about it's about a Republican and a Democrat driving across the country together and finding common ground. Um, so there, I try to get the unity books, but yeah. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about uh, really caught my – I looked – I don't – purposely, I don't do a lot of research on somebody because I want it to be just like we're talking on a park bench and just yeah. getting to know each other because then you never know where the conversation will go, right? And that's the cool thing about conversation. When you know where it's going to go, it's, you know, it's just like a beaten path. But yeah. I want to know a little bit about you, and I saw this thing, and I want you to tell me about it because it really caught my eye. 
Civility dinners, what are those? Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds kind of like your book group. We I started these in Austin uh, in late, no, in early 2017. And I started them because I wanted to help bridge that gap. I, I, I looked at this increasing polarization that's happening and this divisiveness, and I wanted to meet some conservatives. I didn't know any of them really. <laughs> and so I started these things called civility dinners where people on the left and the right come together. We have dinner. Um, the first couple of years we did them in each other's homes. So it was very intimate and we would have Trump voters there. We would have uh, Clinton voters. We had third party voters, non-voters, atheists, evangelicals, like all That's awesome. of, yeah, beliefs. It was so great. And I'm telling How you, how did you get all those people together? That would be the challenge. How did you pull that off? <laughs> well, it, it, here's what I found. It self-selects for people who want to find common ground and to talk with people who disagree with them. So I wasn't getting, and I still don't get at these, I don't get ideologues of any stripe. I don't get social, social justice people don't come to this. Mm, yeah, and makes sense. They don't want to talk with people who disagree with them. They view Trump voters as inhuman. They don't want to humanize them. And so it was very funny because the people who were coming, um, maybe because it self-selects for those who are open to disagreement and difference and stuff, um, a lot of times the people who were coming didn't fit the stereotype of whatever group they were in. So I would have, mm. like, all of, our, all of our Trump voters were black or uh, other people of color, and all of our mm. white evangelicals were Clinton voters. <laughs> Wow. And, but how did they find out about it? Um, how did you I just started – well, the first few, the core group of people, I just, I just started meeting people. I went to a Mike Cernovich meetup. He's on the right, I would say, like a center right. He came to Austin and had a meetup, and I went there to meet conservatives. I was trying to meet conservatives. I actually met some other liberals there who were open-minded uh, like mm-hmm. myself, I was like, oh, cool. They were there for the same reason, to meet conservatives. Anyway, I met some people at that original, at that Cernovich meetup, and I invited them, and they were some of the original core members. And then some mm-hmm. of my liberal, more open-minded friends who were not entirely social justice yet or who were only partially social justice, uh, okay. they yeah, came. Yeah. Um, and then it just grew from there because they would tell people and um, – and now that I have the podcast, we have a, a growing listener base. We have, I think we're at like a little over 13,000 now. And we have, I, and I've been able to meet more people in the area um, who don't fit neatly into any box, you know, like libertarians uh-huh. so cool. maybe or, yeah. And so they, they come out. Now we do them at restaurants because. Um, what was the thing about I, you, you know, said? Too much cumin or something like that? What was that line? Oh, I was joking. I said we uh, <laughs> we only agree in uh, what do we agree? We agree in the importance of free speech and civility in dialogue and a liberal use of cumin. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Which is one of one of my favorite spices. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I love that idea. I'm if you don't mind, I'm gonna try to pull it off here going to be really tough <laughs> because Do they're it. all liberals and i'm going to be honest my gallery when i opened this place 
I knew it was the hardest place in the world to make it happen. If I can make it happen here, I can make it happen anywhere because there are definitely some people that are not happy about my place here. They've told me (laughs) because I've read white and blue on my store. Yeah, and they don't like like that piece of art you got in trouble for with the Trump supporter and the Black Lives Matter person hugging it out. They don't like that. They don't like unity. They don't like things like civility dinners because they actually are this kind of, if you are of a fundamentalist us versus them mentality, then you view the, uh, the, the other as the enemy. You view them as subhuman, inhuman. You don't, you, don't, you don't think that unity with them is good because you don't even view them as human. Like, and look at the dehumanizing language that a lot of people on the left use for Trump voters. I mean, that was a, a red flag for me, too. And I, I you know, your, your piece, the art that you got in trouble for, it reminds me of Hank Newsom. Are you familiar with him? That's where I got the idea for it, from uh, the book. That's right. From yeah, the book with Newsom book. And, and Hedges, Hodges, how they had that's that awesome. hug. That's awesome. And yet that guy, Hawk Newsom, has gone far, far left now. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, it was I, cool I, to see him, Hawk Newsom. Okay. I, it was cool to see him at that, that really um, – at the time, I thought it was really iconic. You know, it was it, him being the representative of Black Lives Matter in New York, getting on stage with Trump supporters, sharing the stage. And he's very different. And that kind of. I saw him on Fox yeah. News. Because he, he, I, uh, I thought, wow, this is so cool. Because I watched the video and I saw it. And after I read the book, I thought, oh, this is so awesome. And then I saw him about two months ago on Fox News. And I was like, what the hell has happened? I was like, what what is going is going on with this guy. And yeah. it's it interesting. One thing I want to talk about with you is this idea of bridges. Food is a huge bridge to different people, and you, you encapsulate yep. that idea. It's a great thing. I have art, and music is a big one too. Art and music brings all kinds of people together. But I feel we're losing one of our bridges. You know what bridge that is? What? Sports. Sports. Yep, sports. Sports is is being burnt. It's turning to political. I don't even want to watch it anymore because everything's political, and that's the last thing we need yeah. is one less bridge. <laughs> it's but that's sad. why they, that's why they are attacking sports. Though they attack anything mm-hmm. that's a bridge to unity. I mean, if you think about it, um, because, you know, humans. I think humans are innately tribal um we like community we like a sense of community community is different than collectivism you know community is i can view you as an individual but you're in my community i don't look at you as as uh a collective first i look at you as an individual but but anyway they 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 oftentimes i think purposefully confuse collectivism with community and they also uh, simultaneously mm. they go after they go after any types of of community that 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 bridge the gap between differing belief systems. So, like I said, Man, I hope you're wrong. They have to get rid of that. <laughs> they have to get rid of that. Look at what they've done. Like you said, they don't like the red, white, and blue. That's crazy. The red, white, and blue represents all of us. That's our country. That's our, if we all belong to one tribe. Anything that reminds us that we're all part of one tribe. 
they want to get rid of it. So they, they denigrate um, the, any kind of American symbolism, flag, um, Carrie, you know, is, that, is that from your opinion? Is that what you learned from social justice stuff learning at Duke? I ju- that's just what I observe that they do. Okay. I, I they, hope you're not. I hope I mean, it's not that been, bad. <laughs> I think it's that bad. They, they also, if you in the past few years, every holiday that is meant to bring us all together, and we're all a part of one tribe, right? Like Thanksgiving or the Fourth of July, they pin countless opinion pieces. These social justice writers. Attacking them, they attack Thanksgiving. Christmas too. They attack Christmas. Yes, they attack it because why? Because and they say you have to be constantly doing the work, doing the work. What does that mean? Well, that means criticizing everything as white supremacist and patriarchal, and pointing out the, and looking for the racism and sexism and everything, even when it's not there. Like they they say, Kimberly Crenshaw says she's another one of these social justice like high priest. She says uh, that it's, it's not a matter of if racism was present in, in a situation. It's a matter of how racism was present. They, they view it as necessarily <sighs> being in everything. And so even Thanksgiving is racist. That's why you see all these countless pieces lately. The third was like hiking is racist. Coffee is racist. You know, dogs are racist. Coffee's racist? Having a dog is racist. Oh yeah, there's there's what? been a couple of new pieces about how coffee is white supremacist. <laughs> Having a dog is racist. Yes, hiking, hiking too, <laughs> gardening, gardening is racist. <laughs> it's funny, but it's also scary that people are buying yes. into it. Yes, Dr. Seuss is racist. You know, it's like never ending, never ending. What? And because let me ask you a question. What do you, you think of? It. Yeah, go ahead. So this is about the time. What do you think of Tamika Mowry? I don't know if I know she who was, that is. Can you? So I thought you would Tamika know who she was. She, she is the woman who was one of the original founders of the Women's March. Oh, uh, okay. I thought you'd know who her. she was. I don't. Know I, her. I I I've been I've been watching her and she's a huge influencer to the BLM thing and I watched her because I used to go to women's marches and then I quit going to them because they were so hateful I quit I, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't handle it it wasn't about women it was about hating Trump that's all it was I was like I'm not going to this anymore so she headed the the division and there was a march and um, um, it's called not um, Mod- not Modesto. Um, what's the place up the coast in California? Anywhere it starts with an M. I can't see the name of, but it's the coast town, and they had a basically had a a women's chapter of Black Lives Matter up there, and they had they were going to have a march, and it turned out that. Only about 10% of the people that were in the race were in the march were women of color. So, so mm-hmm. they canceled it. Yeah, I what remember when this con- – go ahead. Yeah. What they didn't realize is that place was 90% white. But they don't care. They don't I mean, care. They, 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 what is there? These are the same people who are insisting – that uh, TV and film 
you know, that, that individual movies and TV shows have 50% people of color, it's like, well, that doesn't reflect our accurate demographics anyway. <laughs> like, it's, they're not just saying we want six to, uh, 13% black people because that's how many, that's the percentage of black people in, in the States. They say we want 50%. It's like, but that doesn't even make any sense. Or not that I, I don't think you should demand that anyway, because there are certain stories you can't tell when you start to place limitations on, on how many, you know, what percentage needs to be this race and what percentage needs to be this sex. And again, you're, in, you're introducing racism and sexism into a system because um, a lot of times you want to correct for racism and sexism from the past. Well, racism doesn't heal racism and sexism doesn't heal race, heal sexism. I mean, look at, Look at United Airlines. They just bombed big oh, on Twitter. God, they God, they yeah. did a tweet that they thought was going to be popular, and it was not popular. But they said that Thank they want their won. flight. What was it? Right. They want their flight crew to accurately reflect the diversity of their customers, and therefore they want to ensure that in the next ten years or something, that fifty percent of their hires for pilots are going to be women and people of color, and People rightly were like, wait a minute, uh, racial and sex-based quotas for pilots? I just want the pilot to be, like, the best at flying. To land my damn plane. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. I don't care about the race or sex. You know, assign everybody a number. Don't look at their name or photo. Pick the best. Like, don't. Yeah. But, 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 again, they think something so gross as quotas. And, by the way, the thing about social justice is that it's racist and sexist towards everyone. It, it, it's it's racist towards white people and towards men because it says it's okay to discriminate against white people and against men. It's okay to judge and treat them differently because they're white, because they're men. So it's racist towards those groups, but it's also racist and sexist towards people of color and women because it's condescending and pandering. It's like, Women and people yep. of color don't don't need your handouts, United, and we don't need you pretending like we can't become pilots on our own uh, based on merit if we want to. You know, if you have yeah. if you found out that you have racist and sexist hiring uh, processes going on behind the scenes, well, then tell us that and get rid of those. But don't it, don't come in and introduce racist and sexist uh, hiring practices and say that it's somehow to correct some systemic inequality that you can't even define. I, that yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I get a little passionate about this, but it's so offensive. It's like Biden when he no, said, oh, I, I'm going to pick a woman. How offensive is that? If I were Kamala Harris, if she had any integrity, she would have said, how dare you tell people ahead of time that you were picking a woman? Because all you did was cut me off at the knees. So I come in, it's like, oh, I'm the best mm. of the women. <laughs> Like, like, no, just pick me because I'm the best, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's that, that woman I was telling you about real quick about Tamika Mallory, I want to tell you one more thing about her. So yeah. I, my daughter really wanted to watch the Grammy Awards. So we sat down and watched them, and they had a thing, two rappers. I couldn't believe it. And it was basically they were acting – beyond them firebombing buildings and demonizing cops in the thing but the thing that really hit me and you can tell me if this is true Tamika Maori's up there and and she's got a 
a crowd of people behind her, and she's at the mic like she's, I don't know, it seemed almost like she was Malcolm X or something. But to me, it was, it was a different mentality. And she said, we're not looking for allies. We're looking for accomplices. And the word accomplice means somebody to commit a crime with. Yeah. And, and I was blown away by that, that people just blew that off. Like, that's like no big deal. And I looked it up and I said accomplices. And I called it out and people said, oh, oh social justice warriors know that accomplices means a different thing. Is that true? No, no. They, again, they try and manipulate people, control people through language tricks and through redefining words and coming up with new words. What, what I find really impressive about them, actually, is their boldness, because they will come right out. Now that, now that the ideology has gained a lot of mainstream traction, I think it went mainstream in June of 2020. That's when I think it really hit uh, mm. this period that's going to be hopefully thought of in the history books as the peak of a really bad ideology before it falls off, hopefully. But, uh, yeah. but when it hit, it hit its stride in June of 2020, that's when all the corporations started speaking it. The Democratic Party is full-throatedly speaking it. Um, uh, you know, some churches are speaking it now, entertainment speaking it, the media speaking it. There are, it, it, is the, it is the establishment. Social justice has become the mainstream in the establishment. And when that happened, they got really bold about certain things. So instead of saying allies to come out and just say accomplices, it's very bold of them. They also have overtly now started attacking individualism. In the past, they, wouldn't, they would not have admitted, they would not have admitted that as collectivists, their enemy is individualism. But they will openly say that now. You'll, if you look up individualism and racism or individualism and white supremacy, they are writing lots of opinion pieces and they are pushing um, in schools and now in the media the idea that if you're an individualist, that's just a co-word for you're a white supremacist, <laughs> which doesn't what? make any sense. White supremacists Come on, are Gary. Like you're you scaring the hell out of me here. <laughs> I know, and I've, I've I feel like a hellfire brimstone speech from the social justice warriors. Yeah. Good God! Yeah, but I, they will boldly attack individualism now. Robin D'Angelo, in her book White Fragility, she boldly attacks individualism and objectivity, and and they they used to hide that. They used to hide the fact that they were against those things, and so and, and so it's gotten more. They even now have started attacking equality and pushing equity. And again, they used to try yeah, and I know hide that equity is equity yeah. is the biggest problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. but they've gotten very bold, Billy. <laughs> no, that equity so. thing has been around in my town for two or three years, and I've been I've been yeah. saying bullshit on that for two or three years. You know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting about that whole idea that I'm learning is people, and it sounds like you two who grew up in either a part of the country or even a foreign country where this kind of crazy, almost hateful rhetoric affected their childhood, when they see it in their adult life in a different way, they're like, holy fuck, what is this? It's like the same thing. Like, I talk to people from, like, foreign, from a different country, 
and they've moved over here, and they see what's going on now in the country is what they ran from their country from. Yes. Just in a different Actually, way. Actually, you're right. I uh, On Unsafe Space, oftentimes we interview people who have either left social justice, like myself, or who were never part of it, who could see it from the beginning for what it was. And I always like to ask them, like, what is it about you that you think, you know, helps you to see this for what it is? And a lot of times it's because they, they have a relative, like a grandma or a grandfather who escaped communism. Yep. Or, or they have somebody who's been in a country, their, their friends or family who, who's experienced a version of this before. And they have some kind of connection to history so they can see it for what it is. That's not always the case, but I find it tends to be the case. It's very interesting. Yeah, the woman I'm having on my show next week, I'll send you a link to her. She came from, I think she said Yugoslavia, and she has really attacked, gone against her school. I think it's in Virginia about critical race theory, and she's a lawyer, and she is making headway in it and challenging wow. the school board because she said the parents in her school would be like a mob intimidator. And she's like, I grew up in this crap. You don't intimidate me. Like, I grew up in this kind of, and I'm like, let kind of do it. So I'm having her on the show next week to talk about it because I think we just got to, we got to be talking about it. I don't know. Did I send you the link to that website, Fair for All? I don't think so. If you if you did, I don't remember. So would you send it you again? You should check out that site. It okay. has a lot of good people. I don't know if you know who Daryl Davis is. I do, yeah. He's very so, inspiring. So I've interviewed with him. So he's a member of a ton of people. Um, Bar- Barry Weiss is yeah. a, uh, Megan Kelly, um, Andy No, whatever his name is. Yep. Um, a ton of people, and their idea is what we're talking about. Equality through looking at the content of a person's character, not the color of their skin. Yeah. And also free speech. All these things yeah. and civility. And they are organizing people doing stuff. I was on a Zoom call within like a day. And this oh, guy great. is moving it. You sh- it's, it's Like I said, it's called Fair for All. I, I think you will, will really enjoy it because I, I really think – I think we got to do something because now I feel like they've even rationalized away, especially with, to me with with BLM to where the system is completely racist. So if we burn your business down, we're burning down racism. That's their rationale. Yeah, they they believe it's okay. <laughs> there there have actually been there was a book published this past year. I uh, forget the name, but it was something like in defense of looting. And you know they they have no shame. They have no shame, boldly and openly supporting violence as a means to an end. They think that their ends justify their means. And and you'll see one of the things they do. They push these. Like I said, they they are very focused on controlling language, and they push a lot of slogans. And it's almost like in the book Animal Farm, where Squealer the pig, he, he was sort of the propagandist on the farm. Uh, for all the other the pigs who were in, who you know put themselves in charge. Oh, I never read it. Squealer, yeah. Squeal. Oh my gosh, it's such a good read now, and it's it's pretty short. But 
Squealer the pig would take all the sheep out behind the barn and teach them slogans to repeat. And the, the sheep would just sing songs, like go along. The sheep are like the 75% of people in the Ash Conformity Experiment. They just go along with what they're uh, trying to say. And makes sense, so yeah. they, they, they teach the sheep all these slogans like silence is violence. And then you'll see that trickle down and become popular and, and people will repeat it and put it on T-shirts That's and not have in it the on signs. They, they don't say that, do they? No, I'm talking about social justice warriors. They push this. But, silence and okay, violence. Okay, they say silence and violence in this book, book, though. No, no, no. But just like the sheep in the book, the, the yeah, sheep I get are it, caught. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so they they all say silence is violence. They put it on signs. They put it on T-shirts. None of them have ever thought really hard about what that means, or the fact that they don't actually believe it. Because if you disagree with them, and I have at protests, I'll I'll talk to people who have that sign. I'll be like, your sign's a lie. Silence is not violence. And they'll get really angry and start yelling at me. And it's like, wait a minute, would you prefer that I stayed silent? I, you know, be violent? <laughs> and, and they do. They don't even believe their own signs because they want you to shut up if you don't agree. They want you to be silent if you don't agree. But they put this on a sign. Why do they do it? Well, what they're trying to do is equate speech or the lack of speech with violence in yeah. our minds for that to become accepted so that, they, so that we then accept that physical violence is self-defense against speech or ideas that you don't agree with. Yeah, like, they, like on college they campuses, to, yeah. Yes, and they truly, some of them truly feel justified, and they will pen pieces and books on how you're justified to, re, to respond to speech or ideas you don't like with physical violence. Because why? Because silence is violence, because words are violent, words are harmful. Ideas are harmful. They, they've been pushing this for a while now, and I think we're starting to see the fruits of it. Yeah, it's about the, the, the language. The one that's gotten me, that's gotten me the most upset is ACAB. I hate that saying. You yeah. know that one? Yeah. And I was marching with my two daughters. I went to the first BLM protest. I didn't go to anyone since. And... um my daughter saw the sign, and she didn't know what it was, and we got home, and I said, we'll talk about it. So we got home, and I talked to her about it, and she says, all cops are bastards. She goes, what? All cops are bastards? And I just explained her what it was. I didn't really want to. And she says, that's not true. One of our best friends is a state trooper. Most cops are good is what the sign should say. And she was really mad about it. She wanted to, She's like, 11 and she wanted to put the sign in the front yard like no you can't can't put that sign in in our front yard but she started noticing around our town that a cab was written on the back of written on spray painted everywhere and there literally was a cab written on a stop sign on my street and it really bugged savvy and one day i went up there i put a ladder up and i started to take paint thinner to take it off and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should call the cops first because this is not this is private property. So I called the cops up. Cops came over there and stood up on the sign with me, and we both wiped it off. The st- but the fact is, it was up there for weeks. Nobody in my neighborhood said anything about it because they're scared. Yeah, they're, they're scared. literally scared. And I'm not yeah. scared. I've never been scared. 
I think that's yeah. probably not a problem. I'm probably have a no fear mentality. <laughs> Yeah, well, I went through the fear period. I did. And I think everybody, uh, if, if they're, if they're a lot of people I talk to anyway, they, they'll write to me, strangers, sometimes friends about how they, I agree with what you're saying, but I'm too afraid to even hit mm-hmm. like on your post because I don't want anyone to know. Mm-hmm. And wow. I understand that fear intimately. I mean, it kept me silent, like I said, for about six months. And Not even hitting I think like. everybody, whoa, yeah, and I think everybody gets over it. If they're going to get over it, they'll work it out on their own time, and there's no timeline for it. But I will say this: once you do work it out, on the other side of it, it's so much freedom. Like I, I there's no way I would go back to the way I was because now, yeah, you're going to lose things. You're going to lose so-called friends and maybe your job, maybe opportunities. But if you make that choice and you say, okay, I'm okay with whatever it is I'm going to lose because I know I'm going to gain other things. And you, if you walk through that fear and you come out on the other side, you gain so much. Like it doesn't even, in my opinion anyway, it doesn't even compare. I left my lucrative television producing job, my management job mm-hmm. in the entertainment industry. I left that so I could say whatever I want. And I work gig jobs now, and I make a lot less money than I made when I was pushing social justice and entertainment. But there, I wouldn't trade my freedom to say what I want and to not, be, to not have a censor in my head all the time, censoring my own thoughts and my own words. I, I, there's no way. It's not even comparable. There's no price for this that, you know, that's worth giving it up. So, um, Carrie, I, I think, I was, I think yeah. you were key. I, you know why I think you're key? Because you why? can relate to what they went through. I can't. I can't do it because I've always been the kind that I. I don't know why I always have stood up. I don't know why. Ever since a kid, I used to get in fights, mm-hmm. fist fights, to protect my black friends. But you can see how people, lots of people, get intimidated by that, and how to get them through that. I think you're a key person yeah. to help with that because you have the empathy for that. Like, I don't have the empathy because I don't understand. Like, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just do it? What are you worried about? <laughs> Get over your fear. What's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> well, I try to maintain that empathy. Like I said earlier, that's one of my hardest struggles now. Is I have to constantly remind myself of who I used to be because otherwise it's real easy. You can let go of that empathy real fast and, and be like, oh, these people, they're all, you know, idiots, and they're all brainwashed. And I do think they're brainwashed. I do think I was brainwashed, but I don't have to treat them as less than. There's a a quote, I forget who said this. It's probably some preacher or reverend said this, but it was something about love is meeting someone where they are but treating them as if they were where you think they should be. Yeah, that's good. So I try and remember that. I don't always succeed. Sometimes I can be sarcastic or I can be mean to people who, 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 have, who have that ideology and push it online. But it's like going to the gym. I always think like, well, you've got to just keep doing it. It's not, like, it's not like you do it once. Just like you don't go to the gym once and now you're fit. You have to just keep going and going and going. Yep. Same thing with yep. pra- practicing empathy. And some days you don't go to the gym and you fail. And then you just get back on the horse the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so well and it's it it's tough 
to do it, and I was talking to somebody, if you constantly surround you with people that think like you, you're not going to be good at it. Because a thing that Irshad Manji talks about, the woman I was telling you about, by the way, she's just amazing. She said it, yeah. it's important that you are not offensive, but it's important that you are not offended easily. Because if you are offended easily, that's how you get triggered to be offensive. And if you constantly around people that think like you, you're going to get offended very easily. And yeah. I, I really like that concept. And it's clear that you are around people that think different than you a lot. Yeah, and I I force myself to be in like I don't I don't cut off social justice people. A lot a lot of my former friends who are still in social justice they cut me off, but there are a few who have not, and we're still friends, and that's amazing because because they're in an ideology that encourages you to cut off contact with people who don't believe what you do. So the fact that they haven't yet is a testament to there's a part of them that's still very open. And if they're not going to unfriend me, why would I unfriend them? Yeah, yeah. I'm oh, sorry, the mailman is coming by here. My dogs are. What kind of dog crazy. you got? <laughs> I have a little mutt. Uh, he's probably he's like a part terrier, part chihuahua, I think. And then my housemate has a big old pit mix. <laughs> where 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 did where did you get where did you get your dog? Uh, my one of my friends got him at a flea market in Kentucky, and uh-huh. she he lived with her in Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio, and California, all within the span of a year. She's a bit of a gypsy, and then she gave him to me when he was about a year old, and so he's lived with me in Texas oh, ever cute. since. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like the dog. mutt dogs. I I, I have a. a, a American Bulldog Mutt, and it's about 70 pounds. I've had 10 dogs in my life, but the Mutts, the purebreds, I seem to have the most trouble with. The ones that are Mutts seem to be the best dogs. I don't know what it is. Yeah, when they're, mutts, when they're just uh, a, they're smarter. They seem to be smarter anyway, because I do a lot of dog sitting, and I see a lot of breeds. And the Mutts that I I sit the dog said they're usually a lot they seem to be a lot smarter than some of the pure breeds they can figure out how to use a doggy door i'll tell you that whereas some of the pure breeds have to carry outside (laughs) if you seen those little they have these new puzzles for dogs different levels to get the treats out they're simple intermediate and advanced and they're basically like rubik's cubes for dogs how to figure out how to treat out I used yeah. to work in, so I worked, my uh, my minor, as I mentioned earlier, at Duke was women's studies, but my major was biological anthropology and anatomy, and my certificate was uh-huh. in primatology, and I, work, I worked at the Duke Primate Center for four years, and I did my um, senior project, actually half of my senior year I spent in Tanzania studying colobus monkeys, and I bring all this up because we used to have, at the primate center, we had those kind of cages that we oh, did put food in and stuff yeah for the primates because obviously primates are very intelligent and if they're in captivity you want to make sure their mind is stimulated and so that was a way of, of, of sort of trying to compensate for the fact that they, they were captive was giving them these different um giving them their food and all these different kind of rubik's cube puzzles or we would even um take donations and get egg cartons 
and cut the egg cartons up and put food in there uh-huh. and, and, you know, tape it up and they'd have to figure out how to open it and things like that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to have to send you the video that. to my dog is on the advanced toy now and it helps with boredom. You'll have to see because I think you'll think it's pretty cool. You might want one for your dog. Uh, they're they're awesome. pretty amazing okay, yeah. things. I didn't even know. I had a for question dogs. for you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about what your, so for me, I, I have trigger words that, that get me that I have a hard time. I can be pretty civil with anybody even saying mean things to me. But when they attack a group of people with some contemptual word, that's where my tolerance ends. And sometimes I lose my ability to say calm and not get upset. And I'm wondering if there are words that you have a trigger word that you that is harder for you to deal with when talking to people you disagree with, or certain types of words. I can't think of any. I, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, I can't think of any because I'm so used to hearing all the all the ad hominem, all the stuff they say now that most of it honestly just rolls off my back. Uh, you're you're alt right. You're a troll. You're uh, Nazi. No, not about me. About right. somebody else. It, it bugs me when they uh, talk about. Some, I don't. They can say anything about me. I don't give a damn what they say about me. What they say about others? It's like, well, I do. For find me, it when they very start re- generalizing about Trump supporters or something, it just it gets yeah. me. Yeah, That's I, kind of I, like, I, hmm. I guess I'm kind of used to hearing all that stuff now too. But um, one thing that really bothers me like I said earlier, is when people repeat lies that they, ha- that they themselves don't even believe. So when I see mm-hmm. silence is violence on a T-shirt or a sign, I usually want to say something to the person. <laughs> I want to go up to them and just say, hey, that's a lie on your sign. That's a lie, which they don't. Uh, then they usually start yelling. So it, then it's a challenge for me to try and keep, it, keep them calm. So what, what would you talk say to talk to them about that if not going directly? Curious what you have you said things different to have success with that? No, I haven't. Not <laughs> it always devolves. Uh, although here's here's what happens. Just and sometimes I will engage with social justice warriors online who are acting in bad faith. Who I can tell there's no reason at all to have to even try to have a conversation with them, other than for the benefit of those watching. And that's also the case sometimes at protests. Um, I, mm-hmm. if, if a person is just screaming and they're engage, engaging in bad faith, the only reason to continue that conversation might be for the benefit of those watching who are on the fence or who are swayable. And that happened to me. I mean, that's happened to me countless times online where I've continued to engage in a civil way with a social justice person as they call me all kinds of names and over, you know, react and, and behave horribly. And then I've had people write to me privately and say, hey, I watched that whole encounter. Or you made me think about this, blah, blah, blah. That mm. happens a lot. But it's also happened in person. There was a, a Black Lives Matter rally in my town square last year, and I went to it. And I did say something to two different people who had the uh, uh, silence is violence sign. And the second person I said something to, she started screaming at me. And there were actually then her friends started screaming. So it was like three of them screaming at me. And there was a local news camera there. And they asked to interview me and about what we were arguing about. And so 
I talked to them and, mm. uh, and they ran it on the local Austin news. And I, I basically just said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. Obviously I don't agree with police brutality. No one does. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't agree with Mar- the Marxist goals of an organization like black lives matter. And I don't agree with lies on signs like silence is violence. That is a lie. Mm-hmm. And I explained mm-hmm. about a little bit about social justice ideology. I, I couldn't believe they actually ran it on the news because it didn't seem to, usually they like to present everything as like left or versus right, you know, Democrat, Republican, yeah. and stereotypes of, of and, and, but they did run it. And then what happened was um, one of the, the most popular local groups from my community, um, a Georgetown, Texas group, uh, the admins of that group went and quietly blocked me from the group and then mm. allowed someone to post that video, that news video, and, and go on a tirade about me and, uh, you know, direct a bunch of hate my way and, call, you know, accuse me of all kinds of things that aren't true and uh, beliefs and opinions that I don't hold, you know. The same old, same old, look at this racist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I found out about it because a neighbor said, hey, uh, <laughs> have you seen people are piling on you like crazy in the Georgetown group? And I tried to go there and see it, and I couldn't. I had been preemptively blocked from the group, uh, so I couldn't respond. And I, I was like, well, okay, whatever. I, if people want to – I just posted a response on my page in case people sought me out. And people did seek me out. And the, the short version of the story is one of my best friends in town now is someone who was fully in the social justice movement, like I was, at the time. She was in the social justice movement when she saw that video of mine. She wow, came to my page cool. to hate on me. She said she started watching my podcast, hate watching it. She fully wanted to hate me because she was in that belief system. And she started to realize over time that she agreed with me. <laughs> and then she reached out to me and we got coffee and she's one of my best friends now. She's also and this is your best friend. Yeah, <laughs> it would be good to have both of y'all in an interview. That would be a cool interview. Yeah, I think so. She and I should do something together. She's you a really good writer. Should I mean? Yeah. it's it's a cool story and hearing how that happened. I mean, those are things that kind of matter. And 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 I was thinking about it, and, I, and I've talked because I have a like I grew up in the South and. I my nickname as a kid, I'm gonna be honest, there was a candy bar called a zero. Do you remember that candy bar? Oh yeah. It was white frosting on the outside and chocolate in the middle. That was my nickname because I did break dancing, I went to rap concerts, that's the only white guy. Oh, that's and funny. I love basketball. <laughs> so I hung I mean, I pretty much that's all I did. And I'm this tall, skinny, red headed white kid with freckles and the exact opposite they think be doing that but i have you know i still have a ton of black friends to this day and i think what's got to happen is more more and more blacks have to come to say stuff because they can say a lot of things that me and you can't say right and they have a risk i agree with that i think you don't okay tell me why I think we can all say whatever we want and we should. And I think that the response is different though, depending on rate, obviously the response is different. Um, And if you're a black person who speaks against social justice, um, on the one hand, you are given 
uh, you are not written off as quickly by people who only believe some of the social justice stuff, people who are like on the fence or maybe partially in it. Mm-hmm. You, you, have a, you are better able to reach them because you're black, because they have not been trained to quote, unquote, just shut up and listen to black people. So you have a greater ability mm-hmm. for people to hear you, I think. However, for those who are dyed in the wool social justice, who are fully indoctrinated, you're going to get even more hatred, I think, than white people who speak out against social justice. Because most, most of my black friends who are crit- critics of social justice, they get constant hate mail from social justice, from white people calling them coon, calling them the N-word, um, huh. telling them they're betraying their people, um, like the most racist stuff you can imagine. And, and I don't get that kind of, I don't get that kind of hate mail. I'll get a different kind of hate mail. But I don't get that sort of, uh, you know, you're so stupid that you're betraying your race. They, like, huh. expect me I never thought to be of it like a, that. a white. So they, they're like, oh, you're white. Of course, you're naturally a racist. <laughs> you naturally would disagree yeah. with us. Yeah, but they really hate yeah, black people who go that. against the, the ideology because look at it, black women and gay people who go against the social justice ideology. They, they themselves are walking evidence of the fact that this belief system doesn't speak for black people and doesn't speak for gay people mm. and that there is no one monolithic black opinion or experience. There is no mm-hmm. monolithic mm-hmm. gay experience or opinion or female yep. experience. That's why they, that's why they hate, they hate people who are uh, in quote unquote marginalized communities to uh, speak against it. They hate them so much because they, uh, yeah. they repudiate everything they say. Yeah. And, and, and they're in the situation, so they can't really argue with it. They can't refute it. So, yeah. So I yeah, mean, that's... I'm in um uh, I'm covertly in a lot of social justice groups on Facebook, so I can see Are what you? they're doing. <laughs> and That's a good way to do it. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny to watch what, uh, the way this happens every time. is Like, there's a local group here in my town, a social justice group, and it's growing, and it's mostly white women that this ideology appeals to. I mean, it appeals to a lot of different kinds of people, but uh-huh. it, for some reason, white women in particular seem drawn to it, middle-class, upper-class white women. And they join the, I, the belief system, they get sucked in, they join this group, and then you will see some of the new ones who are a bit naive, who are not that. They will share sometimes videos or opinion pieces from black people who don't support the ideology. And so they'll say, for example, mm-hmm. in the group, oh, here's a piece by John McWhorter, who's black. I don't understand. He doesn't like the book White Fragility. He doesn't seem to agree with some of the stuff we do. And then you'll watch in the comments as the leaders of the group, what I call the high priests and priestesses of the movement in my community, they will come in and and explain to you, well, when we say shut up and listen to black people, we don't mean this black person. And they'll go through and they'll like, and you'll watch as they basically tell you there are certain black voices you shouldn't listen to. And it's like, wow, okay, again, you don't even believe what you say. <laughs> like, you don't believe it. Because they don't really mean that. They don't really mean shut up and listen to black people. They mean shut up and listen to black people who speak our ideology, and also, by the way, yeah. listen to white people who speak our ideology. Basically, yeah. just listen to people of any race 
who speak our ideology, but don't listen. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, it doesn't. It could be. It could be a cat or a dog. It doesn't matter as long as they, it they doesn't matter. Speak up for it. Right. Anybody's good. Um, Anybody's good. A, a question: How did you end up supporting Trump? How did that occur? Oh yeah. Well, that was a long that, process. Because that—that's—I so, mean, how does that? Because you were a very different place. Yeah. So I actually—it took me a while because I still had a lot of, I mean, I, what I consider to be just built-in prejudice against him, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of my identity. Sometimes we wrap our identity in all these things, like, like. Oh, if I vote for Trump, does that make me a Republican? Or if I vote for Trump, does that make, what will my friends think? What will, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I still had some of that in my head, even though I had left social justice. And okay. I, looked, I looked at the two candidates and I put them side by side and I, I said, Trump is more of a liberal than Joe Biden is. <laughs> like I have to vote for the person who's more liberal. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, He's not pushing, pushing social justice. In fact, he did a few things to try and push back against it. You know, he passed the executive order that banned um, racist indoctrination in our federal labs and government agencies being, being pushed with our tax dollars. He banned that. He tried to tackle that. He basically said, you can't teach an ideology that says that anyone is inferior or superior because of their race. Um, did did Biden get rid Biden of that? Biden got rid of he it, did. and then he introduced a uh, opposing. He introduced his own executive order that said we will be teaching these things. <laughs> he, he, uh, it's amazing. If you, you, I encourage everyone to go and read his executive order about critical race theory, because if you're a true liberal, I do not understand how you justify to yourself supporting that, supporting racist. Um, that's going to be the battle um, of my town, and I'm not letting go yeah. of that one. It's it's I'm amazing, not, and, and I. Yeah, so that was huge for me because, you know, I, social justice is not liberalism. It's illiberal. It's authoritarian. It just happens to be on the left this time. And I can't vote for an authoritarian. I can't vote for someone who supports authoritarianism. And unfortunately, my old party, I was a lifelong Democrat, um, but my party has been thoroughly eaten up by this belief system. And you know what? It, the Republican Party isn't immune either. I, I see the Repub- some of the Republicans starting to speak this stuff, too. The Libertarian Party was speaking it. I couldn't vote for Joe Jorgensen because she was speaking social justice. What? And I'm she? like, well, yes. And a bunch of Libertarians that I know did not vote for her. They, they missed an opportunity, in my opinion, because we were at a cultural moment where you had tons, tons of people like myself walking away from the Democratic Party uh, or, at the very least, walking away from social justice. And, you know, the walkaway movement was huge. I had friends in that movement. Um, I knew just anecdotally, I knew, I knew a lot of people like my the Libertarian Party, I think, blew it. Like they had such an opportunity to offer an alternative that wasn't Trump, and they didn't. And so I know this is going to probably maybe blow some people's minds, but I know several progressives. I'm talking Noam Chomsky, Cornell West kind of progressives who voted for Trump. And, and <laughs> they almost – one of my friends called uh, called my my boyfriend and was like, uh, I feel kind of gross, but I, I, but I had to, I had to vote for him. You know who you might like? Who I voted for is Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi. I voted for Tulsi in the primaries. You did. I worked on her campaign. 
That's right on. I, I liked her. her. If it, hey, if it had been her versus Trump in the general, I would have voted for her. <laughs> you talk about a badass woman who has no fear. That woman is that. She takes yeah. on anybody. Takes on she's one the of, war machine. Takes on the DNC. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. The war machine. Trump has been much better, in my opinion. He was much better when it came to foreign intervention. He, he was more of an anti-interventionist than any of the recent Democrats or Republicans we've had in office. And I support that. I'm anti-war. I don't believe we should be getting into all these conflicts. And, I, and you know, so there were a lot of reasons why I looked at him and said, well, on paper, I, I don't see how people can argue. I'm like, he's the more liberal candidate, no matter what you call him or, oh, he's this or that or uh, I gotta go. But you're pro-choice, right? You said, didn't you say you're pro-choice? I'm pro-choice. Yeah. You're but, pro-choice. But that's one factor among many. Okay. You know, yeah. like I, I was looking at for me, critical race theory, that which is part of social justice. Social justice ideology is like the biggest existential threat that we face currently, in my opinion. I would love to get to the days where we can argue about abortion again or whether there's a God again. or But right now, I'm like, I'm finding all these. That's bigger really, than that, huh? Wow. It's so much bigger because it's, this is a, the, think about the ways that, all the, all the ways, all the examples we have in history of ideology just completely wrecking civilizations, um, ending in genocide. And, and I'd I don't know where this is going to end up, but if you look at history, it, I don't think it's going to be good. It has a potential to go very bad. <laughs> and so, and, and we're just at the beginning stages of that. And people don't have to, I mean, you don't even have to look at history. Look at some of the best, uh, uh, you know, works of fiction, the dystopian books like Animal Farm, like 1984, like Brave New World, um, Handmaid's Tale, which has been, I think, wrongly tried you know appropriated by the social justice people but if you actually read the book um it, the fundamentalists that we're seeing today in society are coming from the left and and i oppose authoritarianism no matter which side it's on and and yep, I, 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 agree I don't know yep. and we we seem to do have you, a huge blind spot culturally when it comes from the left do you do you think we're in danger of maybe Losing America, what it used to be. I, I do. Um, you know. I mean, I'm I'm not. Some of my friends are what you call black pilled. <laughs> well, they're kind of a. They kind of think it's already over, and mm. some of them are. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the term accelerationist. They believe that no, we should hurry up. They just believe we should hurry up and accelerate to. To, to get the uh, collapse over with. Collapsitarians are also called. So a lot of them voted for Andrew Yang because they thought that he would be the worst option and would totally collapse the economy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Yeah, because they believe we're going to collapse anyway, and they'd rather just speed it up and get to the healing process. Definitely not a half, definitely not a half, uh, half full of glass of water there. <laughs> no, <laughs> like a half. I think Half-empty glass with holes in the side of it. <laughs> yeah. They were like, everybody gets $1,000 a month. Woohoo! let's vote for that guy. He's going to run it to the ground fast. <laughs> but, but what uh, I was thinking. I... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, one thing that the right or the middle or moderates or independents have never done 
is they never do marches or anything. They never do that kind of stuff. I was thinking they ought to have something like Save America, where we all come together in that idea. Because I feel like I you, think, I feel like we're about to lose our country. Yeah. I think that whoever does that, it no matter, well, I think it has the best chance of being accurately portrayed if liberals start it and invite conservatives to be a part of it. Um, I'm a liberal. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're still going to smear us, though, Billy. They're still going to smear us. I've seen this happen. Even in my little town, somebody tried to have a unity rally, a unity march, and it got smeared as being a pro-Trump, deplorable, oh, it's just all you right-wingers. They, it's so deep, this prejudice But who's going right to be now. the liberals? It's, I'm a liberal. Who are the liberals you're talking about? That we, that we get – I mean, people like myself. But see, we get, I get called alt-right already. You probably get called alt-right, even though you're liberal. There, I don't know. I get I called a Trump supporter think, Republican constantly, yeah. I get called me that. Me too. Yeah, for sure. And I did vote for him this time, but they'll say stuff like, you know, oh, you're just a, ma- <laughs> you're a MAGA trumpet. I'm like, I don't own one piece of MAGA. I have plenty wear. of Trump supporter friends, <laughs> trust me. They, I, 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 I will tell you what I tell my liberal friends. I would rather have a conversation with a politically incorrect, ignorant, loud Trump supporter than a self-righteous, pompous liberal any day of the week. I cannot yeah. handle it. I, I, I can't I deal agree. with it. I can handle ignorance. I can't handle self-righteous and condescension. It drives me nuts. Because Where they think guess what? The self-righteous what? and condescension, that's, those are trademark qualities of fundamentalist Puritans. <laughs> and, I mean, it yes. doesn't matter that that's they're true. on the You're line. Right. They You're are right. fundamentalist Puritans. They're self-righteous. They're no different from the Pharisees in the Bible who stood out on street corners preaching so that people might see them preaching and praying in public. You know, they're always virtue signaling how much better they are. They're so much more moral than everyone else. Here's my black square on blackout yeah. day. You know, they're always posting and virtue signaling how good they are. And, and I, I have a Black Lives it. Matter sign in my yard yeah. and all that stuff. Like, yeah. there's like, in my town, there's like hardly any white people. And like, everybody has a BLM sign in their in their yard. And I... Uh, this is probably two years ago. I read that book, White Fragility, with a group of about 12 other white people, and I hated the book, I, but I forced my way through it. And yeah. we sat there, and I told about my experience in the South, and they said, they talked to me, they said, well, how do you talk to a black person? I'm like, you talk to them <laughs> like a human being. Yeah. I mean, they're they're not like a China doll, you know? I mean, and that's the problem. If you just treat people like human beings and not subhuman and not superhuman, but just that in book, the middle. Yeah, see, that book, like all of social justice, teaches white people to judge and treat people differently on the basis of race. And one way it does that is it teaches them that you have to treat black people differently than you do white people. Here are a bunch of questions you can't ask them because they're considered microaggressions. And that list is ever expanding. And I've actually seen in one of those social justice groups I'm in that's mostly white ladies, they're always in there complaining and wringing their hands like, why, why can't I make more friends with women of color? What am I doing wrong? And it's like, you know, you know what you're doing wrong? 
You're treating them like aliens, like the, oh, there's a woman of color. Please be my friend. Like, what is wrong with you? That's a human being. <laughs> like, you're just, no, it, it's, you're, it's so right. I, I, in my town, there's no <laughs> hardly any black people, and two of my best friends in town are black. They aren't even from here. They came up visiting me. They're like, what the hell's up with Northampton? I'll tell you what I don't know, man. They they talk about it. What do what do you want me to do? It's just it's how it is. But I mean, but my question: You were saying I'm not I'm not the right person to do this. Who is the right person to do it? Oh well, I think this will this will get back to your question too about is America lost? I think that America in its current configuration, the way that we know it, might be lost. But I don't think American ideals are lost and principles are lost. I think that the spirit of individualism and equality under the law um, and free speech, and I think all of these things can and will be preserved. I just don't know if it's going to look geographically like it does now. I, I no longer have faith that we're not going to reach some kind of um, catastrophic conflict because it seems that we're on that path. My fiance is reading a book right now about Lincoln, and he just can't help but keep, keep drawing analogies to, to the division that we're seeing today and really? the way that we dehumanize one another. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think, though, that whether or not that kind of conflict happens, I think that we need someone. There's a real vacuum right now. We need some kind of spiritual leader, um, someone who preferably, I think, has a background in preaching like Martin Luther King, somebody who is charismatic and um, has a, an oration style that, that's similar to a preacher and in the, in the way that they speak is calming and loving. I think we need that kind of figure that can bring us together and that can unite us. And I just Do don't you know anybody being... like that. I, I thought Tulsi no, was not like, yet. nobody, nobody, no, nobody Tulsi... voted for. So no, I think it's I mean, going to have to be someone I think it'll have to be someone, honestly, who is uh, more from a preaching background. Like, like uh, imagine a Martin Luther King, but who speaks out against social justice. Um, who, who, because it, it's, it's, for example, it's not what Martin Luther King preached. Martin Luther King preached individualism. No, he what did. What we need is another no. Martin. He did at the beginning until he started getting into com- a little more sympathetic to communism. But you know, when he said his most famous quote, "I have a dream that." One day my children would be judged by the content of the character, not the color yeah. of their skin. That, that's the antithesis to social justice, which says judge everybody by the color of their skin. And, and so I think we need someone like that, that's all. Yeah, I have a, there's, I have a neighborhood news group, and I'm not, I mean, their people are scared. They don't say anything. But you're supposed not to, when you put something political in a post, you're supposed to put political in the front of it. And this woman did this post this morning, just happened this morning, and she said, I'm all about the vaccine, and she she added the word equity to it. And I was like, she talked about equity, I go, I go, I appreciate what you wrote, but please put political in front of it, because equity is a very political term. And I said, yes. it's, and I kind of got in discussion, and people did not like that I did that. And I talked a little about equity, and it's a battle going on. My, my people, in my neighborhood, Carrie, they hate me. <laughs> they hate me. I, I, I literally really? am like a wanted poster, but not not in the police station, at least. There are people everywhere there but are the some people station. in my neighborhood who hate me too. It's okay. Johnny Cash. One of my favorite Johnny Cash quotes is, 
uh, it's good to know who hates you, and it's good to be hated by the right people. <laughs> That's true. So, I, don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm not changing the way I think, but it'd be nice to have, it's nice to have a conversation with somebody who sees things similar and can talk about things. I'm pretty sure I probably lost some people by this conversation in in my uh, audience, but it, it was important enough to me that I, I stand for humanity and not one race or one sex or one gender, but all yeah. humanity. So I really appreciate you coming and talking with me, and I've greatly enjoyed talking to you. And uh, I enjoy talking with you, hope, Billy. Hope we'll get and to talk anybody- more. Yeah, uh, before I go, I'll just say for anyone listening who uh, wants to find out more about our show, we are at unsafespace.com. And we do a a virtual book club, kind of like you do. Well, ours is online. We do a a book a month. Um, And you can find out more at unsafespace.com. That's great. I'm I'm going to start getting that. Have you checked out um, one thing, Locals? Yep, we're on Locals, too. Are you on there? Tulsi has a group on there. We have good. I like Locals. Yeah, we haven't been using it as much yet, but we're going to start using it more um, because they are anti-censorship. And I think we're, it's not long until we're going we've already been kicked off of Twitter. It's not long until we're kicked off of uh, the other major platforms. So um, we're going to start moving a lot of our stuff to locals eventually. But we'll always be. I think Dave Rubin started it, so I like that. He did, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Have a good day, and I'm sure I'll be seeing your stuff on Instagram, and maybe connect, and I'll send you that video and a link to the stuff. And thank you. Glad to have a friend down in Texas. And if I get down your way, yeah. you don't know this, but I had a 50 state hug tour, and I was trying to get to all of them until the virus hit. But I, I'll hit Texas, and maybe come down there and give you a hug when I get through. I would love that. You let me know when you're here. <laughs> yeah, I hit 26. I got 24 left to do, so Texas is one of them. So right on. Um, cool. When this virus is over, because hugs are not the most politically correct thing to do these days. So. No. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good day. And, you uh, too. Thank we'll you, Billy. We'll talk soon. Uh-huh. Okay. Take care. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. All right, y'all. That's another show for Hug Out America Live. Excuse me, Hug Out Radio the first one of the new season. I really enjoy talking to Carrie. We talked for almost two hours, and I think, it you know, we got some controversial topics. We have a great woman on schedule next week, too. For some reason, I can't remember her name right now. But uh, I look forward to wrapping my mind around somebody else next week. And uh, y'all have a good day, and... Hug it out, America. Take care.